Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness to us this past week, watching over us. We thank you for the blessing of this coming week. We thank you for this day that you've given us, this Lord's Day. We pray that you would bless us as we dive into Psalm 22. Help us, Lord, and may we be encouraged, may our hearts be lifted up, may we sing your praises and shout joy, uh, joyfully to you, because of all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have uh, copies of Psalm 22 printed out. I don't know if it's big enough print, but because it's a lot of verses, so I did the best I could. So if anyone needs a copy of Psalm 22, ah, and if you need to be able to read it, you come sit next to Susan and you can look through the magnifying glass with her. That's awesome. I remember back in the day when it was sheets, magnifying sheets, and you used to hold those up to Bibles and stuff. Those were great. So we're going to be diving into Psalm 22. Just a little side thing here for just a minute. I signed the book contract yesterday, and uh, yay, and so uh, that was cool. And then uh, have several people endorsing it already. Larry Hoops said to say hi, by the way. Yeah, he's going to be one of the endorsers. He's already sent it to me. Uh, ben Shaw, who was a professor at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, is now Old Testament professor at Re- Reformation Bible Semin- uh, College, has already sent an endorsement. Jack Collins at Covenant Seminary is weighing the possibility of actually doing a forward for it. So that'll be awesome. So he was pretty pumped. They both, uh, Ben and Jack, were really excited about it. So. so I'm excited. We'll see how all that turns out. So there you go. All right, so we're at Psalm 22. I was just doing that to, to lag time, so we have time. Anybody need a copy? You got a copy? Everybody got a copy? Lee has a printed copies of Psalm 22 if you need it. All right, so let's go ahead and read to the choir master according to the doe of the dawn, the Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you, are not, you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people, All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me and a company of evildoers encircles me. Pierce my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, those who seek Him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord 
uh, of the Lord, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. Psalm 22. I love that song. All right, so just very quickly, things. what were some things did you notice? Did you see the transition? Did you see this huge transition in the psalm? It's not where you expect it. What, huh? Yeah, okay, verse 19. Um, actually, it's verse... Why would it be verse 19? Okay, all right. Did somebody see another place? 22. The big shift comes in 22. He's still desperate at the beginning of verse 22, and the Lord has delivered the last line of verse 22. Okay, very good. But Cindy caught on something that, that you'll, you should see as, as well, a pattern. There's a pattern throughout the first part of the psalm through verse, up through verse 21, and I'll point it out in just a minute. There's a pattern, and it catches you when you finally realize what's going on there. Hey, anybody else? Did you see anything else? All right, well, let's dive in because we got a lot of verses and we only have so much time. All right, I'm calling the, this one deliverance and death. I think that helps to grab the two sides of Psalm 22, or death and deliverance, excuse me, death and deliverance. It grabs both sides of Psalm 22, the first part and then the second part. <clears throat> And so, uh, as I said last week, Psalm 20, 21, and 22 are really decent Good Friday, Easter, and Ascension psalms, okay? You can't miss it as, you, as we've worked through 20 and 21, and now you see it again in 22, okay? And so just remember that. If you look for a devotion around Good Friday and Easter, why not grab Psalm 20, 21, and 22? That'd be a good place to start. So we already talked about the shift. What do you see the shift or the surprising deliverance? Okay, so just keep that in mind as we work our way through this. And really the, the psalm breaks down into two parts. Death, verse 1 through 21a. And then deliverance, 21b through verse 31. When you do an A and a B on a verse, it's just telling you the first part and the second part of that verse. Okay? So the very first part. Again, there's no historical note attached to this psalm. It talks about it being uh, Doe of the Dawn. It's the only time that that's used in the psalms, Doe of the Dawn, in the inscription at the top. Uh, very likely it's a tune or a tone. I don't know how else to put it. Um, but that's usually when it has uh, according to Doe of the Dawn or Dawn of the Morning or something like that or uh, the moaning of the dove and the terebinth. That's a big one in the psalms. It's usually referring, I think, it seems to a tone or a tune, okay, um, that we're not privy to because we don't have that music. So in these first 21 verses, there's a rhythm. Here's what uh, Cindy caught on to. There's a rhythm. It's like waves coming up onto a beach and then washing back out. What you follow is you look for the me, my, I parts, and then you look for the yet you, yet you, but you, okay? There's the rhythm. The first part, and it's just like waves going coming over. Anybody ever lived on a beach? Oh, I know. Okay, I see one. Yeah, I see that hand. All right. So you know the waves. Have you ever been out there? The waves they roar their way up onto the beach, and then it splashes and destroys everybody's sandcastle, and then it washes back out and leaves crabs everywhere. Right? It's the same kind of thing when it comes to the first part of the song. So further, as you read through this psalm, there are multiple layers. You have to think of David as one layer, David's people, and then David's greater son. Does that make sense? Because I want you to get that because we're going to come back to that every time we turn around. The, the layers. David, David's people, David's greater son. Okay? Because I think that will help us to see that the psalm is valuable for us, but is also valuable in pointing us to our our great hope, okay? Is everybody okay with that? You got that? The layers, okay. Any questions up to this point? Well, that's kind of preparatory. So here's the layers. You think about a picture, you know, this is like three different pictures. Anybody remember those, those uh, I can't remember what they were called, but you had, you, you had a plastic sheet and you could draw on it and then you could flip it up and it would disappear, you know? 
and then sometimes there were the plastic films you could lay on top of each other and it would change the stories you went along. Same thing with the Psalm 22. It's layers. There's different layers. When I talk about layers, I hope that picture helps you um, because that's how you should be reading Psalm 22. Okay. So here comes the first wave. All right. So notice the divine silence in verse 1 and 2. Right? You have to grasp the reality of the divine silence. Here's David crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's people at times do feel as if God has forsaken them and it is not a crime. Okay? And I, I just need to say that because I think that's extremely important. There are times it feels like that. But notice that David says that. You're far from saving me from the words of my groaning. You're not even listening to my prayers. I cry to you in the morning time and you don't answer. I cry at the night time and I can find no rest. So just the silence of God, uh, the divine silence. And then, um, as D uh, Dale Ralph Davis put it in his book, Slogging in the Muck of Righteousness, or whatever the name of the book was, he puts it, he says, nothing panics the servant of God like the silence of God. Luther had a category for this. He called this the Deus Absconditus, or Abscoditis, or however you want to put it. it. sounds like a disease if I say itis, right? So, Ditus, we'll say Ditus. It's the, 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 what feels like the absence of God. And Luther would know. I mean, when you read some of his things and you hear some of his stories, he felt at times as if God had deserted him in places. He felt that there was a darkness over him. And I think that that's extremely important for us to keep in mind. Not everybody's necessarily going to have that. Okay? I've run across people who say God is, I, God is never, I've never felt like God uh, was a part for me. That he's always been a part of me. We had a woman in Midland who was one of our piano players, Dot. And she told me that to my face one day. I mentioned this in a sermon and she told me that to my face one day. And then on Christmas morning for church, on her way out the door, there was snow and ice and she slipped and fell up in the emergency room and she was in excruciating pain for six months or more and was on pain meds and stuff and I went to visit her one Sunday or one day and she grabbed me and she said you remember when you said one time some there are times in a Christian's life they feel like God has utterly deserted them I finally now know what you mean okay and so, something we need to have in our in our categories in our thinking there are times when that feels that way when God feels and then even the language, day and night, morning and evening, right? From the sunrise to sunset, it feels like God is not there, the silence of God. But then comes verse 3 and following. Yet you, do you see how, here's the first wave. So the first one washed on those shorts, verse 1 and 2, and now it's going back out, if you will, verse 3. Yet you, and what is, what is he doing when he says, yet you? What is he doing in verse 3, 4, and 5 there when he says, yet you? Yes. Okay. Yeah, very good. So he starts out with me. Here's, here's how I feel about the situation. Here's how it looks to me. And yet you, and then he spends time rehearsing who God is or God's past actions, right? You're holy. What else does he say when he says yet you? What else is he talking about? You are holy. You're enthroned in the praises of Israel. What else does he talk about? Yes, yes, remembering. In the midst of the silence of God, remembering. So he starts out with me, my, I, and then he turns at verse 3, 4, and 5, yet you. Okay, and that pattern will show up all the way through verse 21. Okay? And I think that's a, a very solid place to go, is that when you feel like that's the case in your situation, voice it. There's no crime in you saying, God, I feel you are absent. There's no crime in that, okay? And if anybody ever tells you it is, you tell them, come talk to me, I'll take them on. All right? I got Bible. <clears throat> yeah. Right? And so there's no crime in saying it, but it's being, being obsessed with it where you just drown in it, and that's all you do is do that, okay? So the verse 3, 4, and 5 are extremely important because he does exactly what you need to do in the midst of saying that. You need to say, but yet I know better about you. 
and here's what I know about you. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so let's think in layers. Thinking about David, David's people, and David's greater son as you look at verses 1 through uh, 5. So, so you see David's situation. He's telling you his situation. Yet this is a, this is a, a psalm to be sung in corporate worship. So about David's people. What would, it, what would you say as you look at this through the eyes of David's people? Okay, the congregation. What might you say? We've kind of already done some of this. But. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right, so David himself is going through this, and this is what he did, and now this is handed to his people. And so this is how we can actually engage Psalm 22, right? And then how does this speak to the third layer, David's greater son? Who happened to say verse 1? Our Lord Jesus on the cross, right? So whenever someone says, well, you should never do... Excuse me? Jesus gave us the permission. He did. He led the way. On the cross the eternal Son of God who's never separated from the Father, bearing the load of our sins, cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no crime in saying that. Does that make sense? And so it does. It already, in that first few verses, already is moving us towards looking to David's greater son. Okay? And he bore that, he bore that forsakenness, if you will, the silence of God for us and for our salvation. That's encouraging also. All right, anything else up to this point? Ready for the second one? Yes. Can you think of one example? Ah, yes, Isaiah 53, being despised and crushed by God, etc. Yeah, very good. So Isaiah 53 would be one, if you're using your Bible, write that in the margin maybe to look at Isaiah 53 as you think about it. Very good. All right, you ready for the second wave? All right, here we go. If you're not, we're going to do it anyway. All right, notice degraded and despised. What's the language? As David starts talking about himself and his condition, what's the language he uses? a worm okay and um yeah he feels unhuman i'm a worm and not a man he just feel i mean that's desperation probably uh what we might call now maybe maybe clinical depression i'm a worm and not a man right just this i'm not fully human or i don't feel human um i mean it's real degradation scorned by mankind despised by the people always seek me mock me and he mouths at me just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, okay? Just telling you, all right? He trusts in the Lord, let them deliver the taunting him, verse 8, okay? The degradation, degrade, degraded and despised. And as I pointed out, he's mocked and he's mouthed at. So it's not, bad, it's not as bad as it is that he's going through things. Now he's got others helping him become even more depressed or going deeper into it, right? That's what he's describing there. Yeah, the headwaggers. I'm not saying nothing, but I'm saying, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. The headwaggers. And so then all of a sudden comes the next section. Here's the next part of the wave. It's the yet you, starting at verse 9 through 11. Yet you, okay? And what does he do with the yet you here in verses eight through uh, or verses nine through eleven? It should sound familiar to what he did earlier in the first wave. What does he do here? He remembers. Yes. Okay. You took me from uh, uh, you took me from the womb. Okay. What else do you notice there? It's very personal. So it's not just what you did, verse uh, five through uh, uh, three through four. It's not just what you did for your people in the past. Now he's getting personal. This is what you did for me. I me. He's still back at the I me, but now it's the I me all wrapped up in the yet you. Ooh. Ooh. 
That sounds like a cool title for a book. I, me, wrapped up in the yet you. I don't know. But, but notice what he's saying there. Yet you made me trust in you from my mother's womb. Okay? This is David. This is that, remember the three layers. This is that layer, David, saying, yet you made me trust in you from my mother's womb. I'm just going to say this. I'm going to drop this little bomb, okay? David believed. He says, I believed before I was born. Okay? And I think that's important. Okay? You don't know when a child believes. That's not your purview. God's, God gives faith. You know what I'm saying? We, everybody believe, really, everybody believes us. Arminians, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, all of them agree that faith is a gift. Because that's all over Scripture. And so you don't know if a child that's in the mother's womb is a believer. I mean, just look at John the Baptist. Jesus comes along in Mary's womb. And what does John the Baptist do in Elizabeth's womb? Jumps with joy. Okay? Our problem is that we want children to make an adult profession of faith, and we want them to meet adult criteria. Okay, you need to be able to quote the whole Shore Catechism before we let you join our church. No! Right? So uh, when we're in in session meetings and we hear people say, "Ah, you know, I don't ever remember a day when I didn't believe in Jesus. I'm going, woo! Right? And it doesn't take away the the spectacular conversions. Mine was pretty phenomenal in some many ways, right? But it doesn't take away from that. It's just, here it is. Here, a child in a womb who believes. Okay? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good. Okay, so he talks about, he goes, moves from his degraded, despised condition where he's being mocked and mouthed at. So I, me, my, and then he goes to the yet you. So let's talk layers here, okay? So as you look at it, you see David. He's telling you his own situation. That's the first layer. How about David's people? This is being used in corporate worship. How would this fit in with David's people? I'm talking about verse 6 through 11. This whole section. This is the second wave. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All y'all. And we eat grits too, so it's great. All right. You can do that too as well. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So how about David's greater son? Any of this sound familiar? If you happen to read Matthew 27, verse 39 through 44, it's almost as if verse 8 is quoted verbatim as the Pharisees and the priests stood at the cross and it says they, they cried out, they shouted at him and said, well, he trusts in the Lord, let him help him, etc." Right? You're already moving into, here's this, this is why I keep talking about layers. You're already looking also from not just David and David's people, but you're looking forward because it moves you forward. Okay? And so you see the cross. You should see the cross here. Okay? Anybody else? We got more. Here we go. So verse 11 leads to the third wave. Notice how verse 11 says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there's none to help. And starting at verse 12, the next wave from 12 through 18 tells you what trouble is near. Okay? Verse 12 through 18 tells you what trouble is near. So here's the third wave. The description of the trouble, specifically in verse 12, 13, and 16, is animalistic. Notice how animals are being used to describe the viciousness of people. Bulls. I've been reading James Harriet, his uh, all, all, uh, all Creatures Great and Small, or whatever it is, and um, he, talks about this, he talks about the bull, the one bull that he knew from a, from a young bull, and then all of a sudden this moment comes as he's growing up that he no longer recognizes Harriet. I mean, he's no longer friendly to Harriet, and he's got horns sticking out, and he's ready to go after Harriet. And 
bulls can be a bad deal. If you ever get caught in a field with a bull, you need to hope the bull's blind or get out of there quick, right? So here, here, here they're like bulls that encompass me, not just one bull, but a herd of bulls, okay? And so, yeah, my bones are out of joint. Of course, as bulls hit you, your bones go out of joint, right? Things like that. Um, my heart's like wax, melted from my breast. Um, and then he goes, um, I'm sorry, it was the wrong one. Then verse 16, like dogs. Dogs encompass me as a company of evildoers encircles me. You know, we've had, since I've been here, in tw- since 2012, I know of two situations where uh, dog owners were killed by dogs. Not their dogs. They were trying to rescue their dogs, but it's two, only two dogs attacking their little fluffy, you know, the little poo-poo, you know, Oh, come here, don't go. And then two dogs killed them. Imagine if you have a pack of dogs. Right? That's the description. A pack of dogs. These people are like a pack of dogs. Do you hear how vicious this is? How violent it is? Okay, that's the trouble. So troubles look like a gang up. It looks like a lynch mob. Okay? I think it's a good way to put it. It's a desperate situation he's in as he's describing it. Uh, trouble's effects are described in verse 14 and 15. What are, what are trouble's effects? It's his body. What's happening to his body? Yeah, it feels like he's dying or maybe he is dying. Uh, poured out like water, bones out of joint, wa- heart like wax, melting. Uh, I don't ever do this, but Anna gave me a bunch of old candles and when I'm lighting my fireplace, you know, and I, I just, you know, so I throw a candle in there with the wood. It's great. It's wonderful fuel. And it melts as the fire is heating up and it just, you can hear it sizzling and sapping. He's talking about his heart melting in, in this heat of this trouble, okay? Um, tongue dried like a potsherd, tongue sticks to my jaw, you lay me in the dust of death. Does anybody remember Oz Guinness, know who Oz Guinness is? So Oz Guinness wrote a book back in the early 1970s. He hung out a lot with Francis Schaeffer and the title of the book, I'll never forget it, it's called The Dust of Death. Wow, what a bestseller name for a book, right? But he got it from this psalm, The Dust of Death. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and so Psalm 22 reminds me that we don't have all of David's stories. We don't know which one this fits into, and it probably may not fit into any of them that he actually, we have recorded. Remember, remember, remember that the, they don't tell you everything there is to know, the First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, but they tell you everything you need to know. So there's lots of gaps, okay? So I don't, we don't know all of the episodes David went through, but as he's recounting this one, it was harrowing, Okay? Ah, but here we come. It's the, next, it's the next set of verses right after verse 18. It's verse 19, 20. And Cindy had alerted on this. Verse 19 and 20, we're back to the yet you. And here it's in the ESV, it's translated as but you. It's the same effect, though. But you. So here was the, here's my trouble, and it's pretty desperate. But you. What does he say? What does he do with the, the but you section? Verse 19 through the first part of verse 21. He switches focus. He's doing what he did back earlier. He's talking about who God is, right? But you, uh, and, and notice he's, even though God has been silent, he's, he's felt like God has been silent, he doesn't stop talking to him. He's following in the footsteps of Job. Never forget, Job is the only one in the book of Job who keeps the conversation going. His three very astute, theologically astute friends, God is pretty peeved with them. Because they're not talking to him, they're talking at him or about him. And they're taking their theology and being very obtuse about it and beating him over the head, Job over the head. Job, though, in all of his desperation, with all of his doubts and all of his frustrations, keeps the conversation going all the way through Job. He's constantly praying. And so at the end, no surprise, at the end, he says to, God says to Job's three friends, you're in a heap of trouble. And my servant Job will pray for you, which he's been doing through the whole book. He'll pray for you, and then you'll be healed. 
No surprise, really. Okay, and that's what David's doing, even in the desperation. My friends, no matter how desperate it is, keep the conversation going. Talk to God. Keep throwing your prayers at Him. That's what's happening here. But you, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, my quick, uh, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul. Uh, my precious life, how the dog saved me from the mouth of the lion. He keeps the conversation going. Okay? And so that's the, the third wave, okay? We can talk more about layers there again. We're back at it. There's David himself. And as David's people are singing this psalm, what might this, how might this resonate with them? As David's people are singing this psalm, how might that resonate with them? Anybody? Increases their faith. Yeah. They remember what God did for David. And maybe they're, maybe they're going through the same, similar things in their, as they're singing that psalm. Right? It's a big plug for why it's good to sing psalms in church. Because sometimes somebody coming into church is not happy. Their heart's broken. Their family just fell apart or there's death or whatever. And to hear a lament every so often is exactly what they need to do. They need to sing the lament, and we need to sing it with them, okay? So that's what's going on there. How does this fit then, third layer, how does this fit in with David's greater son? Yes. And so in John 19, uh, verse 18 is actually quoted, they divide my garments among them, and and for my clothing they cast lots. The cross is the epitome, the the picture of Psalm 22, okay? At least the first part of the psalm. Very good, okay. So here's what Charles Spurgeon wrote in a sermon uh, called Speak, Lord. He wrote it, uh, he preached it on March the 20th, 1884. I believe it is a shallow experience that makes people always confident of what they are and where they are, for there are times of terrible trouble that make even the most confident child of God hardly know whether he is on his head or on his heels. Yeah, good, good classic Spurgeon, you're exactly right. But I appreciate that. Because that's not necessarily the message you hear in more popular situations today. Okay? Where it's all about, hey, you can claim it, you can you should you should never you should never be worried ever you should never you should never be tried or, or feel like you're being tried you should never despair god maybe has forsaken you or, or it feels like god has forsaken you should never and here's charles spurgeon and he would know because he actually his wife had uh, serious ailments for a long time and he himself struggled with depression i think that's a very helpful statement yeah Right. Yes. Yeah. It's something we said last week, that sometimes when you're in the moment, that's all you can see is just the moment, and you look at the future through the lens of just this moment. And I would say maybe many people who commit suicide are in that trap. Okay? And so, so I say that not to, to think that we're better than them, but to be empathetic and sympathetic. Okay? And so, but that warns us too to not be consumed in this moment, whatever you're going through, okay? And I think Fred's right, and, and Charles Spurgeon's right, and Psalm 22 is right. All right, here we go. Let's move on. So now comes deliverance, the last part of verse 21. The deliverance brings David to do what? So verse, uh, 20, uh, so verse 21 tells you about the deliverance in this language. Uh, and still he's talking about the, um, the, those who are causing him trouble. He still uses wild animal language, right? But he says, you have, what tense is that? Yeah, it's past tense. You have, so the, the rescue has come, the deliverance has come. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So then the deliverance comes. What does the deliverance bring David to do? Verse 22 to 23 and then verse 25. Yeah. Give thanks to the Lord, right? I will tell of your, to, to, uh, your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. 
um, you who fear the Lord. Now he's turning to all the congregation. You who fear the Lord, keep it up. Keep trusting him. Okay? All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him, etc. And then verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation, etc. So because of the deliverance, David can honestly say verse 24. Now think of verse 24. I'm going to read it. Think of verse 24 after he's prayed and said verses 1 and 2. Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The deliverance has come, and now he knows. Yes, I thought you had forsaken me, but you were hearing me the whole time. Not only that, I love this language at the beginning of verse 24. Somebody here probably needs to hear this. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. There are Christians who despise your affliction. I could tell you stories, I won't, but there are Christians who despise when you are afflicted. They think that you must not believe and you may not even be a Christian and they will run from you in your affliction. But isn't this great news? You have not despised the affliction of the afflicted. I mean, God Himself says it in Isaiah 44 when He says, in their affliction, I have been afflicted. Think of that language. In, their, in the affliction of my people, I have been afflicted. Sometimes we get this weird idea that God is so far away, so totally other, and He is totally other, that, but that He's unattached to us, and yet by His grace, he is so united to His people that in their affliction, I'm afflicted. I was afflicted. And so, of course, He doesn't despise or abhor the affliction of His people. That's exciting news. Yes? Yeah, 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 very good. Yeah, Psalm 22 is one worth carrying in your back pocket and keeping with you, okay? So layers, think layers here. I think David and David's people is pretty obvious, okay? How about Christ? David's greater son, how about this? How about, um, for example, in verse 24, he has not despised or bored the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from him but has heard when he cried. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Well, you know what that means. It didn't mean that he was rescued from the cross. He was rescued through the cross. Yeah? Okay? Yep. Yes. Also, if you look back at verse 22 here, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, the writer of Hebrews says, that's Jesus leading us in worship. And I think that's something we need to think about as we get ready in a few minutes to go to worship. Is Jesus is the worship leader. He's leading us. He's the one proclaiming. That's pretty cool, right? Okay. All right, well, let's move on. Anybody have any questions or anything they want to say before we move on? Okay. Yes? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, yeah. I need to try this hypothesis on Versailles for a minute. I think what Alan was talking about, that as he's going through the trouble and he remembers, he recalls what God has done faithfully in the past, makes him able to see when God brings deliverance. So that he knows this was deliverance. And it wasn't my doing, it was God's doing. I mean, how many times has God done things in our lives and we, we respond as if we did it or, it, oh, it weren't nothing, right? And so David actually, in the midst of his troubles, remembering the past, was then prepared to see when God did bring deliverance and to know who actually did do that. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good. All right, so let's move on here. So what does the deliverance break out as in verse 27 through uh, 31? What does it break out as? Look at the language here. Verse 27 through 31. Actually, we could go back to 26. From 26 to 31. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Uh, May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even, he's probably talking about himself, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations, etc. So what does the deliverance break out as in verses 20, say 26 through 31? Yeah, praise. Who said worship service? Okay, in fact, it's communion. Twice. Talking about eating. And then when you go back to Mount Sinai and you remember that the 70 elders actually went up Mount Sinai to a certain point and it says they ate in the presence of God, right? I mean, it brings this feasting. So it is praise and it's feasting. Think about our worship service. It's exactly what it is. We're being drawn in to sing God's praises, to remember His deliverance and to praise Him and to feast with him I love the picture there okay so high notice notice who's there high and low prosperous and puny successful and suffering yes I worked hard at this all sit down together to eat there's no dividing line they all have a similar story about God's rescue in an impossible situation they gather together together, the high and low, prosperous and puny, successful and suffering, and they sit down together to eat and to worship God. Yeah. That's right. Very good. Yeah, that's community. So the final two verses should motivate us, especially to tell the coming generation and those unborn. I love this verse. And you parents and grandparents, even... Those who've never had kids, there's all kinds of kids around. Listen, here it is. Posterity shall serve them. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. You have a mission. Tell the coming generation of what God has done. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. And He has done it. Yes. Yep. 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 Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So you think about Psalm 22. Anything else before I get to this conclusion here? All right, here's a conclusion of my conclusion. How can this psalm be useful when someone is going through death, dying, trouble, and turmoil? Times of distress that cause them to feel deserted. How can this psalm be beneficial and you can help with it, maybe? It's not a rhetorical question. Sure. Right. 
Yeah. You don't want to be Job's three friends and say, oh, you just should go through Psalm 22. That'll take care of your problems, right? You don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. There we go. I, I want Psalm 22 to encourage you to actually saddle up next to someone going through something like that and saying, and you may not say, just simply say, well, here, you just need to hear me read this and that's all there is to it, but you can actually let it guide you as you help them. Let me help you. Let me help you lament. And let me help you remember who God is and what God has done in the past. Yes. I can, I think. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Alan? Yes. And that's probably where we hurt people the most is when we deny their suffering. Yeah, or accuse them. Yeah, that's the worst one. Well, maybe it's because you sinned, you got this tuberculosis. You know, that, what? That's not really helpful. Right? Well, I feel in despair because I'm going through this ailment. Well, then we harm them when we say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. What? Okay, good. So, in what way does this psalm draw us to Jesus? Trick question. I gave you all kinds of ways. Just throw out some examples. How does it draw us to Jesus? His suffering on the cross for us and for our salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So you think about verse 21 where the big shift is. You think of Good Friday and Easter. Good Friday and Easter. Right? Draws you again to Jesus. Okay? And then to worship. He's leading worship. He draws us into worship. Worship includes eating. Yes. Right? All that together. Good. All right. Yes. 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 Right. Absolutely. Keep verse 24 in your mind. He does not afford or despise the affliction of the afflicted. Yes, Steve. Quotes this verse here, yeah, from here. Yeah, right. That's what I was pointing out earlier, how he's the one leading the worship service. Yeah. Yes. Fellowship of hopelessness and aloneness. I like it. But I mean, it's true. Sometimes I'll tell somebody, they'll be going through something, and I'll recommend that they, maybe we'll read a passage together, or even look at a biography together. So I did this the other day. I was talking to a young candidate, who's a candidate for ministry. His wife, who just gave birth two years ago to their third child, has lupus. They didn't know it when she was carrying the child, and now they know she, she has lupus. So we're talking on the phone, and you can just tell his heart is breaking. Because he's, he's got a lot of load to carry, and he's watching someone he loves unable to do what they should, should be able to do. She's having seizures while she's holding the child and zones out for two hours. I mean, can you imagine that? If you're the loved one, you're the husband or whatever, and this happens, right? It's just heartbreaking. And so we're talking about it, and then... I could tell he was just, he just felt alone. And so I said, do you know who B.B. Warfield is, was? Well, yeah, I've heard the name. Well, he was a big reformed theologian in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s. Did you know the story about his wife? No. His wife, right after they got married, they got into a huge thunderstorm and it so traumatized her, she was an invalid for the rest of her life. 
Here's this world-class Reformed theologian. We always remember him for that. And yet he separated his time between his invalid wife caring for her, running back home to her all the time. And then he would go back to the classes and teach this star, star, you know, bright star theology. I mean, it's wonderful. I said, I just want you to know, unfortunately, we don't ever talk about our forebears who are in your situation. But here's one. Go get a biography and go read about it. But I want you to know you're not alone. He says, man, that is so comforting. I mean, that's a great place to put it. And that's what Psalm 22 gives us is that as well. Yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, yes. Yeah, right. Very good. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah. And that's what Hal was just talking about. Yeah. Not trusting our feelings. We, we can acknowledge them. This is how I really feel. But not necessarily trusting them to lead us and stuff. Remember the truth. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. So Walt Disney's wrong, right? Just follow your heart. No! I can't tell you how, many trouble, how much trouble they ever got me into. I don't want you to do it too. All right. Anybody else? Let me end with that, that verse 24 again. And, and just keep in mind that picture at the end where the high and low and the prosperous and the puny and the successful and the stressed and all that are gathering for worship. Remember that as we get ready to go into the sanctuary. But again, just uh, the buoyancy that comes from verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his faith from him, but has heard when he cried. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Psalm 22 being in your holy scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for the honesty and the, the integrity of it. We thank you for David voicing these things. We thank you that it, it invites the people of God to come into this and be able to voice it as well. But then we see it at the cross and we can't miss it. But we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who does hold us up. When we even are going through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they do comfort us. So, Lord, thank you. We pray, I pray, for anyone right now who feels the affliction, feels uh, bowed over with uh, trouble, Lord, that you would hold them up, that we would gather around them, and that we would, together with them, lament, but also hold them up. So, Lord, as we get ready to enter into the assembly, help us to come rejoicing in your deliverance. Come to proclaim your praises and to eat in your presence, enjoying your fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.